Polar Pro, challenging the boundaries set by traditional camera gear. Polar Pro is a team of designers who are trailblazing creative freedom for storytellers everywhere. PolarPro.com. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for Thanksgiving week, the week of November 28th, 2019. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker extraordinaire, Charlene Wong. Hello. And we're going to be talking about The Irishman from all angles. We're going to be talking about Netflix taking over the Paris Theater in New York, something that was illegal just a week ago. And we're going to be wrapping (laughs) it all up. With the news of Frame.io getting a Series C fundraising round. That is our tech news for the week. Uh, All that on the No Film School podcast. All right, guys. So, first story this week. The Irishman. If if you've seen it last month, it's because you saw it in a movie theater. Uh, but not the Paris, because Netflix hadn't bought it yet. We'll get to that in the second story. Uh, I saw it at the, uh, my God, I can't even remember the name of the theater, but it's like a big old classic Broadway theater in New York City that they mm. rented out just for, it's the first time it's ever shown a movie in 100 years, and they showed The Irishman there for a month. Oh, the like the Broadway? Is that is that what it was? It wasn't, it's not called the Broadway, but it on, did start with a B, and it was on oh. like that 42nd Street. On Street. Broadway, yeah, yeah. yeah. And nice. So I saw the Irishman awesome. there. I actually, I don't know if I should tell the, yeah, anyway, I won't tell the full story. Uh, <laughs> but it's now opening for Thanksgiving on Netflix. Netflix is mm-hmm. clearly aiming for that Thanksgiving afternoon, day after Thanksgiving afternoon, hanging out with the family, food coma, binge watch. And uh, what do, we've all seen it, correct? Yes. Yes. Oh, Yes. Is it better Where than a Marvel movie? Is it is it true <laughs> cinema? Is it is it cinema? Um, <clears throat> well, I guess I'll start just by saying, for our listeners who don't frequent the No Film School website, www.nofilmschool.com, you certainly should frequent the site. But uh, there's been a lot we've written about the Irishman and Martin Scorsese and his comments about Marvel not being cinema. And that stuff has just populated the airwaves and the internet and our site. And uh, seeing The Irishman for me was an exciting and interesting and unique experience. I mean, three and a half. Is it three and a half hours? Yeah. Yep. Like 340. Yeah, Yeah, 340. It is a (laughs) long time to sit in a movie theater. And it is a long meditative piece um, and, you know, we're film people. We love Martin Scorsese. We, uh, he's inspired and I, I mean, he's, he's a huge, he's a national treasure. Um, he's an icon. He's a piece of cinema. He's a cinema preserver. He's, he's everything. And this is a movie that I think the way I think of it is it, it's capping off his mafia trilogy because I see it like Goodfellas, Casino, and the Irishmen are like kind of a, especially because De Niro and Pesci and just covering the inner workings of the mob in the 20th century. And this movie is uh, the the old, the reflective old age version. I think you can't talk about this movie and not talk about de-aging and the technology there. And I like, <clears throat> I guess I'll kick it off saying there's one 
particular scene that I really want to talk about. And I wrote a piece that's going to be up on the Unknown Film School about this scene. Um, but we can talk, I'll, I'll try to come back to it later. But I did want to say, I personally found the de-aging and the age of the primary characters extremely distracting and problematic. So I don't know what you guys thought, but that's my sort of like, it was really hard for me to appreciate a lot of the movie for what it was because I was often confused and distracted by how old they, they were. They looked like bobbleheads. They looked like bobbleheads. <laughs> it was literally, I thought I was oh, at a Dodger man. game and I got a De Niro bobblehead to take home. His head was oh, like man. too big and his body was too little. And it was like, what the hell? Okay, it's well, I'm glad. I felt like I was going out a, on a limb there. <laughs> I mean, it's it's interesting. Well, for me, I I did find that de-aging a little bit distracting, but I walked in the theater yesterday at 7 p.m. I came out at like midnight and I didn't, I di- it didn't feel like like an almost four-hour film to me. Like I, I guess, yeah, I did feel that de-aging was a little bit distracting, especially in the very beginning when he's supposed to be i think actually in his mid-30s when he yeah. first or when he's driving and the then when he's at, the weirdest and part. then when he's at war he's like supposed to be like 25 one right like yeah very young man I that think was he's not supposed to be in his 20s <laughs> he did not they i think they got down to like you know 47 maybe at that time like they didn't they couldn't get to the age 21 or eight like he didn't look that young like that part yeah, for sure. But I mean, I still loved like a lot of the performances. I mean, I also feel that maybe because I've seen these of Joe iconic. Career. Yeah, it, Joe Pesci also had de aging, and I thought he looked much like much more convincing. You yeah, know? like he he was. It, it was maybe because he mostly stayed kind of like internal sinister, so it kind of helped with that. But like Frank is a very physical guy. Like he's a killer, and he's supposed to be a very tall and very big guy which is you know interesting because did they also add height in in the cg yeah, so, uh, i'm wondering to, about to con- that actually uh, just quick contextualize what yeah. you're saying charlene sure. uh, frank sheeran the the real life man who wrote yeah. the book uh yeah i heard you paint houses is a very big irishman and he fits the bill if you look at pictures of him online which i encourage people to do oh yeah robert de niro is strange <laughs> is a strange choice um yeah. he's one of the greatest actors who ever lived but he's a very strange choice to play this man and uh he he was huge and i think de niro was wearing lifts and i think de niro was uh. they worked on his posture to some extent but it it's 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 a little odd yes and yeah, yeah pesci mostly was in shadow sitting yeah. down always playing older the main point i kind of i'm still trying to think about is like you know i've seen these three main like iconic legendary actors for for like decades you know and if i i wonder if i didn't know what they looked like or knew that they had aged like if i didn't know have that like reference in my memory of these faces how that might have been a different experience you know because i do think that our memory of who these you know, super, you know, amazing legendary actors are is going to interfere with our level of suspension of belief, you know, in these moments. With, with yeah. these, uh, and that's, that's something that, you know, it's, it's difficult, you know, it's difficult to fight that because they're such, they're such amazing, amazing actors with a, with a long career, you know, amazing careers, all of them. Um, so it's, that was, yeah, but like, I, I love the movie. Like, I really love the movie. It was, it was an amazing experience watching it. I wonder how it will look on the small screen. I wonder how the de-aging will look like on the small screen as well. But like, 
And one one other thing I do want to, you know, before I hand it off to, to Charles, is that you cannot de-age their physicality. Like, it's very clear that yes. when you see Frank stomping on someone's hand, he... Yeah, you know, he doesn't have that swag, that swing. You know, like of a very, like of a he you know, younger. To me, like he looked to me like he was in, like something awful was happening. Like he was having a heart attack <laughs> or something. I, I was really uncomfortable yeah. watching that moment. Yeah, yeah. That oh, yeah. I, 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 oh, I saw when he threw it the gun away, he climbed over the rocks to throw the gun in the river, and you watched him climbing <laughs> on those rocks, and he just. I was not worried look... about him. Yeah, yeah. I was worried. I was like, I was no, like don't, don't fall, don't fall, don't slip. Which is not how yeah. you're supposed <laughs> to think about a killer. Yeah, for sure. Look, I loved The Irishman. I thought it was really great. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Exactly the same as you, Charlene. I walked out and I was like, yeah. those three and a half hours, like, you're transported. <laughs> but the yeah. de-aging is complicated. It, it's also really complicated for me because, like, De Niro might not have been the perfect person for that role. Obviously, he helped put the movie together and he read the book and he showed it to Scorsese and there's a lot of, like, factors in it. But, like, just off the top of my head, like, Chris Bauer would have been better casting and is the right age. And, like... I miss the days when I miss the days when even the streamers would take more of a risk. Like if you think about it, uh the star of Goodfellas, um, whose name escapes me right now. Uh, Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta. Oh, Ray, Liotta. Ray Liotta was not yeah. a big star before Goodfellas. No. Yeah. But Goodfellas yes. made Ray Liotta a big star. There's another exactly. Irishman where it's like Chris Bauer, who I fucking love. And is amazing. If you if you haven't seen The Wire, second season of The Wire, the older Sabatka. Oh, right. that dude. Yeah, he yeah, would have yeah. been amazing. Awesome. And he's the totally. right age, yeah, and yeah, he's yeah. the right physicality, and he's a phenomenal actor, and he's so talented. And you're like, I would have seen The Irishman with Chris Bauer if it still had Joe Pesci and De Niro <laughs> in an older Italian mob role and Pacino. Mm-hmm. As yeah. all. Like, I still would have, you know, I. it's just... We're in this conservative era where you need a super <laughs> big star to get these movies made. Yeah. And I don't know, like, De Niro's a phenomenal performance. But you know what? It's not my favorite De Niro performance. It's it's not a Raging Bull or a Taxi Driver. It's not as... Yeah. And it's like, I walked out of the movie thinking it was Pacino and Pesci's movie. Really. Mm. Yeah. Pesci, yeah. Uh, Pesci gets raves across the board, I think, for this He's movie. Amazing. I, th- I think, uh, for me, Pacino was... Um, his also the de aging just weirded me out. I don't know. The, you oh, know, never what's the name? Him. I was okay. I was a little more okay with him because he's supposed to be. I think Jimmy Hoffa was much older than Frank yeah. that Frank. period of time. So I was yeah. a little bit okay with that. And his acting what? was so vibrant and explosive. Yeah, he's so he's a live wire. What's <laughs> the um? What is the name of the actor? He's English who plays um, Tony Pro. The other yes, Tony Pro. Wait, that guy's you know so great. Um, yes. So yeah, he, he played he, was awesome, he played yeah. Capone in yeah. Boardwalk Empire. Yeah. Now what what oh. I found where I got really pulled out of the movie was that was where with the de-aging, particularly in some of the casting, was when that guy comes into the movie, he is bombastic in the oh, kind of yeah. way, and so is the character, and is so is his entrance cinematically. But it's in the way that Pesci was. Uh, you know, in Raging Bull and Goodfellas or mm-hmm. De Niro was or Pacino was. And, you know, I don't know how old he is. He's 30s, 40s probably. But when you get him playing opposite Pacino in a scene that's brimming with conflict and it becomes mm-hmm. a physical altercation and you have a man in his 30s, 40s who's the physical <laughs> energy, the vi- the yeah. life. Who's and he's fighting charging a man, a man in, his in his 70s. His- yeah, you think he's going to kill him for one, but but you also, you know, if you can if 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 you watch a De Niro 
Pesci scene from Goodfellas or from Casino or from Raging Bull, of course, it crackles. Like the energy is so alive. And in these movies, because of their age, you can't recreate that energy that people have. Like it's a different energy when you're in your 70s. The eyes are different. The the voice is different. And I think you use that because I think the most powerful moments in their performances came when they were playing closer to their age towards the end of the movie. Yeah, totally. Because you can't fake that youthful thing that said i will say and i think they should have cast a guy who's more obviously an irishman even though de niro is largely irish he doesn't he doesn't play that way but Mm. i felt the scene where de niro um makes that phone call towards the end and it's i think it's all in one shot to joe to the wife Yes, I felt like that was like something I've never seen. I felt like they built to that so well in the dynamic between him and and the daughter. Yeah. Just the disapproval and and her comment brings him into the room to make the call. And I just felt like his performance in that scene and the way Scorsese shot it, it was like I, I've there's no, I've never seen something quite like it. Like in yeah. a in a three hour forty minute movie, there was one scene to me that was just wow, that was amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, and one wow, it's amazing scene is kind of worth, like, a really satisfying ending is worth a movie, I think. And I think the ending does work in The Irishman, or it did for me. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Agreed, yeah. And that was interesting. But, I mean, it like, I'm, I'm an outlier in Scorsese in that Casino remains my favorite Scorsese movie. And, like, I get why it Anna Paquin so never had a good scene. <laughs> but, like, I also just missed that, like, energy and like bigger palette Sharon Stone brought to Casino. Like Casino is legitimately Joe I, Pesci, Robert De Niro, about... and Sharon Stone. I'm just talking about the total absence of like a true in-depth <laughs> female character in the Irishman. Exactly. I was, was um, yeah. It's kind I was going to say <laughs> that's kind of the only time Peggy actually initiates, like Peggy, the daughter, the favorite daughter, she only initiates com- a conversation like once at the very end when she asks like, did you call Joe? Why didn't you call her? But throughout the entire right. movie, they, you know, she only responds when spoken to. And, and I'm like, mm, she's just yeah. there to, to look and be disapproving. <laughs> Arguably, yeah. and, I, and I didn't, I didn't count, but I think the female actress with the most lines was Welker White, which is like, great. Welker White's amazing. And so happy to see a good fellow's callback. But like, really? Jo- <laughs> Jimmy Hoffa's yeah. wife was the one with the most, like, there was no significant interaction he never yeah. had an argument with his wife when he got home. There was no, it was just like so. Yeah. And I, but like, like in, in Scorsese's defense, this, this is from the point of view of Frank, who's, you know, much older and his memory might just be, this might be like his, rem- his memory of what those significant moments were. And that, that might just be the kind of guy he is, you know, his attitude towards women. And in a way, I heard just, some, a friend of mine. that. Yeah, sorry. I, I just was reminded. Oh yeah, go uh, ahead. A, fr- a friend of mine came out, having come out of it, said like, "I think it's the whitest movie I've ever seen." And I thought, right. I actually think it's the most like masculine. Like we talk about the the Bechdel yeah. test, it fails oh, like something. Oh my god, something oh, sub yeah. sub Bechdel oh, yeah. test. Like because even the scenes, <laughs> it's fascinating. Even the scenes where they're driving on the road trip and their wives are with them, mm-hmm. their wives are like. Um, they're like background audio. They're like accessories, they're like, yeah. They're like literally in the ciphers. background, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they are, they're chatting at a lower volume yeah, that's like literally. almost so <laughs> less important and understated. And, and that's the movie. 
and the perspective of the story, but for three and three hours and 40 minutes, it's impressive to really <laughs> minimize the role women play to that extent. Um, and I think that, yeah, I think it does miss something. I mean, the women in the female characters in his movies, I mean, I don't know that his movies ever passed the Bechdel test, but Casino, Raging Bull, <laughs> I mean, Alice Bull, doesn't live here anymore, probably did pass the Bechdel I'm going to assume did, Alice yeah. didn't live here anymore, passed the Bechdel test in the 70s. Yeah. I think, I mean, like, yeah. Scorsese has been reasonably good on gender. Yeah. But, like, this one, like, and I'm not saying you have to follow every rule every time or anything like that. But it's sure, just like, sure. it just seems like there's a moment where he's like, now was probably not the best time to leave my wife. And I was like, okay, okay, you just left your first wife for your second wife. And you make a joke about how now is not the best time. So does this mean well. I'm going to then see some implication or results of that? And I saw nothing. I saw no, like, the yeah. first wife talking to the cops. I saw no, like, the the new wife getting introduced to the life. He, was, he made this one weird line where it's like, now is not the time to leave your wife, but I did. And then nothing came of it. And I was like, I can't even remember you, what his first wife looks like it, in the movie. She's they, so not. They literally, they yeah. made so little of it. It could yeah. have just been one wife character. So I was like, all right, so you made a point of him flirting yeah. with the waitress. And then the waitress never even has, I think her only line is, if you need anything, call me. And that's yeah. her line. <laughs> yep. Something like that. And yeah. then she's his wife in the background, in the back of the car. I, the, the, um, <laughs> thinking about Goodfellas, though, the, the role, the primary female oh, lead plays Lorraine in Goodfellas, Raging Bull, and so Casino. Good. Yeah. Those characters are so critical to the story. So this yeah. one really, it was missing. It was really missing that. I mean, he talks to, at the end of the movie, Frank, in his later stages, goes and talks to one of his daughters who basically we've never seen until yeah. that point. She's it's grown not Anna like, oh, yeah. character. It's a different character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was like, where did this other daughter come from? How do, how come? I don't know. It, it was, uh, there was that something. That was kind of like his, Frank's problem, right? He wasn't a very good father. He wasn't yes. like, it, his memory of his life didn't seem to include much of his, the women in his family, which is really, it is really sad. It's and so sad. Tragic. It, very tragic. It's, yeah. It's also a movie very much about male love because it's a love triangle between these three men. And mm. at the core of the drama is the question of how it's going to shake out. I mean, they really yeah. love each other, those three guys. There's yeah. scenes of them getting into bed together and not scenes That's of right, the, all right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's it's kind of weird. Like, I mean, not, it, not weird. It's, it's not what you would expect, but there's an right. intimacy between them and it's pronounced, and that's the core of the story. And again, for a mob movie, it's very unique. But yeah. that really struck me. Um, they they really those guys those three guys but, love each other. <laughs> oh yeah, but that's what I loved about the performances. Like they can, there was that connection in every scene they had with each other. And I I just want to like as an aside, I can't believe Al Pacino is seventy nine years old, and it's the first time he has worked with Martin Scorsese. Right? I know it's crazy. Yeah. That's the very first. That's wow! I, that's that's amazing, and it was it was it was amazing. His scenes with De Niro were were great. They carry so much history as well, and also with like De Niro and Pesci, like that stuff. I really enjoyed, you know, watching that build on their whole whole careers, and then entering this phase of it. Definitely. From a filmmaker perspective, is there anything that we can sort of touch on as we you know wrap up talking about the Irishman? Um, is there anything yeah. that really stands out as a creative, as a somebody who's working to, I mean, beyond things like 
it's kind of strange to go out of your way to <laughs> not take risks or cast 79-year-old men or it's a shame. Like there's there's obviously stuff baked into all that we've talked about that applies. But, you know, from the from the craft standpoint or from the filmmaking perspective, did you guys have any major takeaways or thoughts? Um, for me, I thought it was an unusually quiet movie for a Scorsese film. And I thought it kind of reminded me a little bit more of his like more contemplative religious films. It's, it's got a little bit of that quality, which I found really surprising and an interesting approach to this. They're all like, you know, it, like from their mid to late 70s. And I guess I don't see a lot of movies about contemplating death in your life in this way. And I really value that perspective being, you know, being told in the story. And I thought that was very moving. I really, it really felt like a whole life unfolding in front of me on screen. Even and the de aging was a was a part of that, even though it's a little bit you know iffy here and there. So yeah, in that sense, I thought it was an incredible experience, and I'm so glad I saw it on the big screen. That that was like a that was like a, a wonderful experience for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I would agree. In the end, I think even though the de aging weirded me out, I liked the movie so <laughs> much, and I agree with Charlene actually that this is the movie where the de aging it fits those themes, like having the same actors. As much as I would have recast with Chris Bauer if I could have, uh, having those actors <laughs> play those parts at, uh, and seeing them over the course of their lives and seeing, you know, the young man as the child of the old man, the young man as the like, you know, like, like seeing that linkage was a really rewarding part of the emotional experience. The thing for me that I really take away as a filmmaker is the way in which, like, you know, films are. The thing I resonate with so much about Scorsese is, like, the way in which he really grapples with themes. Like, you know, uh, as much as there's violence and there's characters working, there's these phenomenal performances and he's such a great actor director, he's really interested in, like, big moral issues about the world and life and how we live our life. And, like, you know, I love so much about Casino, but one of the things I love so much about Casino is, um, you know, Ace Rothstein's stubborn determination to live his life the way he wants it to be you know like he wants to believe that his wife is who he, th he thinks she is and he refuses mm. to look at her for who she is and you watch that play out and like there's some of that in the Pacino character where Pacino as mm -hmm. Hoffa yeah. is mm. very much like no the world is I'm going yes. to make the world the way I want it to be. And everyone <laughs> yeah. around a little, him. A little Tony Montana there. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. But everyone around him is like, actually, you should look at how the world is. Like, pay attention to how the world is. You don't have the support for this move right now. And, you know, yeah. that thematic, because that's something we all grapple with all, all the time in our lives. How much can I achieve right now? What is possible? Can I just will this into being? Can I will a business into being? Can I will a movie into being? Can I will, like, whatever it is, can I will it into being? Or yeah. is the evidence not there in front of me to do it? And, like, this movie hinges on Hoffa's determined will to get control of the Teamsters back. And the rest of the world's insistence that you actually look at reality in front of you. And uh, I really love the way in which that question of, like, mm -hmm. where does Will stop? And where where do we stop and the world begin? Which, in a religious sense, is, like, where do we stop and God begin, right? Like, how much, yes. like, can I pull off? Like, is it God's yeah. will that I'm going to get the Teamsters like back? And then at the end, it's like, who cares? Because everybody 
you know, we have a finite time here. And at the very end of the movie, it's just like, everybody's gone. You're the only person left, Frank, you know? That's well, and very the, you tragic. know, I, yeah, Charles, it, what it reminds me of is I think that there's a, you know, a lot of people know, not everybody knows, Martin Scorsese has a real history with religion and faith. And Charlene, mm-hmm. you mentioned that this felt more like the films that sort of cover some of those topics directly. But I think all his films sort of address something about will versus God. A God in mm-hmm. the sense of not a specific God, but a power beyond our control, a force mm-hmm. of nature that we are that that can work against us and we should go with the flow or not. And I think about things like these Scorsese protagonists always, but specifically in the mafia movies, they destroy themselves and we watch them destroy themselves. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. they're really destroyed by their unrelenting insistence on, like you said, Charles, doing things their way and not Mm -hmm. accepting fate or powers beyond themselves or, and, and like thinking about that with this movie it it is a it is another movie where um yeah it's a it's a character unwilling to accept that there are things they cannot control and that crushes them and i think that you know for me as a film from the filmmaking standpoint i did think he handles violence differently in this movie than he's handled it in the past oh yeah and it was very (laughs) it was like I, what's the word I want? It's a movie about a hitman, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of his movies' violence is is kind of hyper stylized in the way that yeah. Tarantino has taken off on. Like, think about Taxi Driver. Think about the <laughs> fighting in that, and then think about Casino, the gunfight. The head in the it's vice. like, yes, yeah. in this movie, it's a it's like it's far almost away. an act it's of like... cowardice, right? Yeah, it's fa- yeah. it's far away. It's, it's quick. Rushed. It's a hit and run. Yeah, and there's nothing cool about it. And I think yeah. that that is a really powerful choice for a filmmaker who made hyper-violence sexy so much. Yeah. yeah. This, th- to make a movie where it was like, no, it's just pathetic. It's actually kind of pathetic, This what the way the hits go down, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. that's fascinating, just as a choice after the, yeah. this. This is the guy who made violence, like, yeah. I mean, before Tarantino did, so stylized and crazy. It's yeah, also really funny because like, I yeah. wonder how much of that is just not having to negotiate with the MPAA. Because, like, famously in Casino, <laughs> he did the right. head squish, assuming that they would right. ask him to take it out. So he would go extra violent, assuming it would be pushed <laughs> back on. But here, you know, no, Netflix, I mean, I guess they did have to rate it to do the release in the end. But, you know. Oh, uh, maybe. Yeah. I wonder if it had to do with, like, the themes of, of death, like this is an older, yeah. old, old man who's facing the end of his life. And that has to do with his memory of looking back and, you know, these killings and its association with other people's deaths and how he was responsible for so many. And, you know, his time is near as well. And how that, how he, you know, how that makes him look back on, on things. Like, I feel like it's the mind's eye looking at what was done in the past. Which mm. I think is great. Which I th- which I think is brilliant because it is super different from how he Scorsese, the director, used to cover violence in all his other stories with these like young, you know, arrogant criminals. And now so, it's it's a different, such a different approach. Yeah. So in your mind, the de aging thing is because like actually, when I think of myself as a teenager, I picture myself now but shorter. Like I don't really <laughs> remember myself. <laughs> so you're saying this whole thing is a memory, and so that's why De Niro know. at I... twenty five looks like old De Niro, but like softer. 
that's I, a fascinating I, that's how I kind of justify it in my head wow. to sort yeah. of because it's a it is a it is a memoir it is looking back and is an old man telling a story to nobody basically to us and he's an unreliable yeah. narrator so I think he's an unreliable narrator so I think like that's part of built into it and I think it's an incredible sensitivity that Scorsese has as a filmmaker to be able to understand that and tell that visually with his uh, framing and his camera work. Um, we, we didn't actually talk about the cinematography on this because I... Holy I, fuck, but it's so I good. I heard it's quite crazy. Yeah. Um, I think I heard that... I read that De Niro did not want to wear helmets. They did not want to wear like things on their head during performances. They wanted to act and behave and work walk around set as, you know, any set and no green screens. And so, so they shot with like three a camera rig that has three cameras, one helium red and two mini Alexas side by side. And sometimes they had two or three setups for scenes. So that's like not six to nine cameras. Holy um, crap. Yeah. Just that's so they can have the freedom. Yeah, yeah. And so to move around and to capture whatever angle they need for, you know, making sure the de-aging process matches, you know, with every single frame. Um, and they also created four different lookup tables for the different eras, like Kodachrome, ectochrome eng processes for each of the eras which i thought was kind of cool and i think that adds to this the sensation of memory kind of being a different feel for them sometimes it's based on pictures they saw or old charlene can you can you tell me a little more or tell us a little more about the um why did the inmate charles you might know too so they had a red and two alexas why two different why why not three alexas or three reds they had three cameras um, for each camera setup. So it's one main camera, which is the helium, and then two witness cameras, which are the Alexa minis. And they were rigged side by to either side of the helium camera, I think, to capture the sort of nuance in a different um, movement of the face and lighting on the faces as the actors move, which helped in the help them get all capture all the information they needed for the de-aging process. But if I were to guess why they used two mini Alexas on the side and a different one on um, for the main, um, I'm going to say it maybe it has to do with data management. I also think perhaps they were trying to keep the camera rigs a bit lighter. And um, so maybe maybe just having uh, two minis on the side was enough to capture all the information they needed to help with the de-aging process and keep everything as slim as possible because um, sometimes they did have setups, uh, three setups per scene for some of the um, um, intimate conversation scenes. And that meant there were nine cameras on for each time they shot um, a scene like that. I need to read the American cinematographer on this, obviously. What my guess was going to be is that the Alexa was actually the primary camera that they were using for gathering like picture information that they were using to master the scene. And the helium was probably running ultra slow motion to catch micro movements. Because one of those things when you de-age, you know, because helium is usually going to be like usually if you're on an Alexa show, you, you bring the helium or the monster out or whatever for slow-mo, right? Like that was Game of Thrones whole thing. It was an Alexa show, but they always had a red around for slow-mo shots or for steady cam shots, that kind of thing before the mini was around. So my assumption was wow, a lot of... that's a really cool thing I didn't know. So a lot of times when you're doing <laughs> VFX cool. uh, and you're doing like face work in VFX, micro movements are a really big deal. Like, you know, there are all these like barely perceptible movements we don't really notice or appreciate 
So my guess is that the helium was there shooting like 300 frames per second so that if the animators wanted to look at a really slowed down version of a movement so they could see like, oh, actually that eyebrow moves up before it moves down. So as we de-age it, we need to preserve that. That would be my assumption. But since it's one helium and two reds and the helium's in the middle, now I have no guess. I, I mean, we should all go read American Cinematographer's article on this. I Okay, I have another thought I want to put out for you guys to kind of weigh in on. I also wrote something about the Irishman up on a film school, questioning whether there is some some little slippery bit of hypocrisy in Martin Scorsese's comments and his op-ed in the New York Times about the state of cinema, considering that he made a $150 million-plus movie with uh, developed and based on previously published IP, heavily leaning on visual effects, starring some really big names and ultimately like isn't that a lot of what he's saying is the problem with what he's calling marvel movies but is really like tentpole filmmaking now that it's not taking risks on new talent that it's spending a lot of money on things like visual effects and that it, i mean i know i know what he meant was different but i think what i what i want to know is what do you guys think of that and did having seen the movie and considering they used nine cameras and there's a lot of filmmakers who would die to get their hand on one of those to just shoot with a hundred thousand dollars right i mean we live in a world where there's micro budget filmmaking and, and bootstrapping and these guys shot on nine <laughs> like cameras sometimes like it just feels a little bit like I know it's part of their goal. I know it's not like he can just say, hey, I'll make The Irishman for $100 million, and then for $50 million, let's make 50 other little movies. I know he's a prolific executive producer of movies. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just spitballing a little bit, and I want to get your guys' takes on it because I couldn't help but feel a little bit like it was a bit of the pot calling the kettle black. I felt that I, The Irishman is a very character-driven film. It's very much about the uh, intimate relationships between the, between the three men, and it's a character drama. And when I walked out of the theater at almost midnight, you know, at night, it did not feel like four hours had passed. And with a lot of Marvel movies, after a while, because there's so much action, it's a lot of fighting that by the end of the film, sometimes I just become so fatigued from like watching so much action, I sort of get lost and don't even remember the story. And that's not to say that I don't admire the artistry of Marvel films. I think Marvel films are, you know, sometimes the action sequences themselves are in and of itself beautiful works of art. I highly, highly respect all the hundreds of artists who work on these Marvel films. But as far as comparing the Irishman and Marvel movie, I find that the Irishman really gave me a greater understanding of what these the story of Frank Sheeran and how you know his how he experienced loss, regret in his life and um and I think it's a very very valuable valuable type of cinema that we um that I very much cherish and the experience for me was very deep and extremely satisfying. And one more extra thing to add to that um that the CG for the Irishman, for me, really allowed um, allowed me to get into the performances of each of the actors, and these are legendary actors who we've you know we've all grown up watching, and so it's it's a, it's a quieter film, and the CG supported more of their sort of internal struggles and their struggles with um, living on the margins as criminals and. 
um, yeah, that was a very immersive experience in a very different way than a, a, a Marvel film for me. Yeah. 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 I mean, we can't end it better than that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I have, I have, I mean, my only like, yeah, my thought was going to be the thing that makes it cinema is that it has a com- concrete ending. Right. Like Marvel movies are always setting yeah. up the next one and like, all right, well, this one didn't, you know, Ultron's dead, but is he? I mean, I don't know if Ultron is even a bad guy. <laughs> I haven't seen these movies. <laughs> Polar Pro, a company that strives to challenge the boundaries set by traditional camera gear, have engineered a brand new product into their flagship lineup. While setting out to make a splash in the cinematography space, Polar Pro has created an ultra-lightweight matte box system called Basecamp, which was designed to cater to the needs of a run-and-gun cinematographer. Most creatives within the photo and video industry strive to be seen as professional cinematographer rather than just another creator in a saturated market. Just like in mountaineering, Basecamp is the point in the journey that separates the professionals from the rest of the pack that has made it this far. When using the Basecamp filter system, it will enable you to elevate your content as you ascend towards the goal of ultimate professionalism. So the question is, are you going to join the ascent? Head to our Instagram stories to check out Polar Pro's new map box and be part of the climb. So uh, next segment is actually related. Last week on the podcast, we talked about the end of the Paramount Decrees, which is the 1940 era uh, court rulings that said that uh, the people who make the movies can't own the theaters. That the DOJ announced they're ending it last Friday. They filed to end it. This week, Netflix took over the Paris Theater in Manhattan. So Netflix moved quickly. They've, they've been working on this for a while. They were talking about buying the Egyptian Theater in L.A. They might still be talking about it. Um, I'm not worried about any of this. I don't think any of this is going to, like, destroy the universe. But I do think it is really interesting that Netflix is getting into the theater ownership business. I personally am excited they're keeping the Paris alive. It's the last single screen theater in Manhattan and they're going to be, you know, doing theatrical runs of Netflix movies. They're also going to be showing, you know, premieres and available for rentals and there's an event space and that's going to be exciting. Honestly, I'd be so excited if they do buy the Egyptian theater, their plan for the Egyptian in LA was that they were going to let American Cinematheque still program most of the programming. So if that was the case and then American Cinematheque maybe started programming the Paris, I would be so happy to have an American Cinematheque in New York. So I'm pitching that to you, Netflix. Have the American Cinematheque who programs the Egyptian theater in L.A., which is how, like, Charlene, you and I went and saw Godfather 1 and 2 uh, back-to-back on, like, December 29th one year because they always show. All the theaters in L.A. show Godfather on Christmas. The New Beverly always does it. The Egyptian always does it. It's a really great way to watch those two movies back-to-back. Um I would love it if that was happening in L.A. I can't wait until my daughter is old enough to take her to the Godfather back-to-back. I don't know when that is. Probably 11? Four. Four? (laughs) Um, She's got to get started on the good ones early, you know? Yeah, it's tough to figure that stuff out. But that's a whole other (laughs) podcast subject. Um, I, uh, yeah, I just will weigh in being an Angelino, and we have... This, uh, we have the Egyptian and we have the Arrow. They're both American Cinematheque. I'm pretty close to the Arrow. Having two kids makes it very hard to get there, but enough about my life. It, <laughs> they are amazing. The programming is great, and it's great to have theaters that are showing those kinds of movies. And I think like everyone benefits 
from watching those movies. And just like hat tip to Martin Scorsese, who's one of the great preservationists and helps make that sort of thing happen. Um, I think this is a potentially good thing, but I also think the scary thing about this, like we've talked about, is um, you know people who make make movies owning where they're shown is a scary slippery slope. I don't know, Charlene, do you have thoughts? Um, I I think it's pretty owning where they're shown. I I actually for Netflix specifically, I like the idea of them bringing these movies to theater and allowing them to have a longer run than I think Irishman is only like three weeks before it goes into Netflix. And, you know, it's interesting that they're foregoing a lot of box office money in order to just get it out out there for Netflix. Like they like how much they believe in streaming, but I mean, you know, I never saw Roma because I kind of don't want to watch it on my TV screen. I really want to wait for it someday and hope and pray it'll come out in a movie theater somewhere. And, um, you know, any chance I can see a movie in a theater first, that's that's always my first um, my first choice. Um, and I think for them owning these theater, it sounds like from what I'm understanding that they um, not only will just program Netflix show uh, movies, but also you know very cinephile type programming along in collaboration with the um, with the original owners and programmers for these theaters. So I'm I was I felt optimistic about it personally. Yeah, I mean I, you make a great point. It I don't want to see movies like certain kinds of movies. I only want to see in the theater. And what like Roma was a good example. I kind of didn't want to see it. Because I was like, I have to watch it in my living room. That's not how I like to watch these kinds of movies. So we may be in a in a minority. We're a special. Yeah, I think we are actually. Yeah, I know. But like I like the Irishman. I was like, I don't. I guess I would have watched it at home, but I I wouldn't want to. I really and I I hate saying that because I feel like most of the people listening, that's the only choice, and that's a place where I'm so on Martin Scorsese's side. Is is just like. It, it really is a shame. And, but maybe more people want to want, have the ability to watch it at home. I can't tell. Uh, for me personally, it's just like going to the theater to see a movie that was meant to be seen in the theater is so important. So I, I'm a Netflix subscriber. I love a lot of the content they create. I'm a really big BoJack Horseman fan. Uh, I would actually probably go see a, a season premiere of BoJack Horseman in the theater and laugh along with everybody else at, at BoJack's hilarious antics. <laughs> I do cool. want to point out that we ran a story a couple of years ago mm-hmm. about a filmmaker who made a doc that did well at festivals. Netflix made an offer. They passed on the Netflix offer. And Netflix apparently at the time, I don't know if they still do, but apparently at the time had a policy that if you pass on our offer, you'll never run with us. Hmm. Meaning six months later when they were talking to other distributors Every other distributor was like, oh, well, because they passed on the Netflix offer because they wanted a theatrical. Every other distributor was like, oh, we'd love to give you a theatrical, but unfortunately, you won't be able to then, we won't be able to get it on Netflix after, so we won't be able to recoup. So this film ended up not getting any distribution at all. Ouch. Wow. Now, at the time, Netflix was the only game in town. Now there's Apple TV, which isn't doing acquisitions yet, but probably will be. There's Disney Plus if you're in the family-friendly arena. There's Hulu is acquiring movies. There's, like, more choices than there were three or four years ago when we ran this story. But it is a scary moment that Netflix, in that negotiation, was like, oh, well, if you don't run with us, you're out. 
uh, like yep. if you don't accept our first offer, we'll just never work yeah. with you. And it does like I love for all the reasons Charlene is saying. I'm so excited that I will be able to see. Like, hopefully they'll run their own stuff rep at the Paris, and eventually they'll be like a special screening of Roma. Because uh, I would love to go see Roma on the big screen. I also haven't seen it yet. But I am worried about those kind of, those same kind of like, all right, well, you know, like now you're a filmmaker and you're trying to hold off Netflix because you're like, well, I'm really trying to hold off a theatrical. Netflix can now say, well, sure, hmm. we own two movie theaters. You'll play theatrically in those two movie theaters before you're on our platform. I don't know. It's a... You know what? I really just liked the Paramount decrees. <laughs> they were they're pretty toothless for the last 20 years. Like, they haven't had, you know, like, the big conglomerates that own movie studios are all big shareholders in the theaters. So it's, like, not actually the most powerful decrees. But, you know, separation of content creation and distribution is kind of a good thing. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think Netflix has taken a step, like, forward in that because they – I think they had – wasn't it they had a um a can film a couple years ago that was um uh I'm like completely blanking um citizen <laughs> a citizen Kane director it was like a, it was the movie that he he didn't finish and they were going to Orson, Orson Wells. Wells I don't know why and they were and they were not going to show it at Cannes because you know they wanted Cannes wouldn't allow them to show it there because it was going to stream first or they didn't have enough theatrical release before then. And I think Netflix just boycotted the entire Cannes film festival and pulled out everything. And I think they've taken a step forward and willing to try to, you know, do, you know, at least, you know, place, uh, be willing to play some of their stuff in theaters and give them a theatrical run and try to try to like, please what, you know, some of the audiences and theater distributors as well. It's not, I don't think it's like, yeah, I, I can see how, you know, it could be not having that separation between like the you know, the content creator and the, and the distributor could be could be problematic. But I guess I looked at it in, in terms of like this is them kind of stepping up a little bit more than they used to be. I would just say I think, yeah, I mean, I think like we're, as we wrap like wrapping up the discussion on this one mm-hmm. is like. We're going to have to keep watching this, right? Yeah. We're going to see what directions yeah. it goes in. Yeah. And, like, there could be cool things that happen and there could be, like, legit scary things that happen out of it. So yeah. we're going to keep reporting on it and discussing yes. it because yeah. it has a pretty big impact yeah. on filmmakers yeah. and the future of of where content yeah. lives yeah. and what kind of deals are available to yeah. people. So this is a big step yeah. in that progression. And, and I yeah. think we'll just and, keep our eye And on Netflix it. is making films that, you know, that are non-Marvel and they are investing a lot of money in them. And that's... They're making Marriage Story, yeah. which nobody else would have made. Yeah. So I, I that's why I'm a little more <laughs> optimistic is just, I'm just, you know, as a fan of movies, cinemaphile, that's, that sounds promising to me, but... We'll keep you know what, and I'll throw the last thing out as a tech as the transition to tech news. Netflix is really good at pushing technical standards. They mm. have my favorite white paper. It's a whole website spelling out all their tech standards. They're really good at pushing things forward technically, and I think we can reasonably assume that any theater supervised, owned by, leased by Netflix will have some really beautiful projection and audio standards, and you'll be in for a good experience, and that'll be great. As filmmakers, we want the best possible final. Yeah projection experience and i suspect the paris will look really 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 good um so with that let's transition to tech news our tech news story this week is less techy but it's definitely newsy and it is frame io 
the work in progress review tool, got a Schedule C. So what the hell is a Schedule C? If you're not like a startup geek, uh, schedules refer to like the fundraising rounds. So you have an idea for a business, but you don't have any customers yet or anything like that. You go and you look for like what's called like angel investment or like, uh, you know, really early investment. You start building a thing, you get really early investment. And uh, that's like angel. Schedule uh, series A is like you've got some customers, you've got a business plan, you've got some like you've got some money and you want to grow. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Series B is like, okay, you've grown a little bit. You've gotten, you've gotten like a stable, reliable business. You've proven your business plan, and now you want to start expanding a little bit. And then Series C is really the scale series. Wow. Series C is like you've figured out your market, and you're going to start trying to go after other markets. Series C is like um, I'm going to start buying other companies that do things that are strategically aligned with us. That's all Series C. Yeah. And the real way, the, the reason we define them like this is because different terms happen for each series. So like angel term, you might give $100,000 and get 10% of the company, right? With each t- with each series, you need more money and you're buying less of the company, right? Like a series A, the company might raise $10 million to give away that 10% of the company. Series B, it might be $20 million to give away that 10% of the company. Um, series C, it could be $50 million and you're giving away 10% of the company. The later you invest, the more expensive it is because, you know, if you were that angel that magically found the right company for $100,000, you got 10% of it, um, which, you know, by the time of Series C, that same 10% would cost $50 million or whatever. Um, but the later round, Series C is really big news for Frame.io, and it's really big news for filmmakers because it's really a sign of how big the filmmaking market is. Like, so few people in the 1980s got to make movies that a work-in-progress review tool that, like, helped people collate notes from teams would have only had, like, 4,000 customers. There wouldn't have been a business there anybody would have invested in. But there's so many thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are making stuff now and who are dealing with teams and collaboration and all of those things that Frame.io helps with. There's so many people that do that. There's so many potential customers that Frame.io can make a case to investors that not only are they already, I think they're already profitable, not only are they already in profit, not only are they already really market dominant, not a, only are, do, have they already like landed a lot of big clients, there's still a, enough room to grow that investing $50 million at this point, there's somewhere to go. So it's huge news for Frame.io and congrats for Frame.io. But it's also really great news for filmmakers. Like I remember in the 90s, I was somewhere with a friend and he was like, I'm going to work in movies. My parents don't want me to because I don't think there's any jobs. And I was like, is he, is he true? Are there no jobs? In 2019, 2020, there are plenty of jobs for people working with moving images for a living. There is work. There is so much work. And this is the Schedule C is really all about that for me. It's like there's even room for starting businesses within the film industry that could potentially serve such a mass market just of filmmakers that you're interesting in a Series C for investors, which isn't something that was like that common 10 years ago. There are a few, Avid Media Composer or whatnot. Um, what's also interesting, one little secret about the film industry is that most people's number one client is the government, like Matthew's sandbag, Matthew's grip equipment. Their biggest client is the California Department of Transit because they buy their sandbags to hold down construction signs and stuff. Uh, And, uh, I wonder if Frame.io has a big government contract. I wouldn't be surprised. 
I, I mean, that's just I pure, like, I don't know why I yeah. thought of that now. Um. I, I, the only time I used Frame.io was actually on a project with, uh, with Charles, and I, I thought it was great. And I just wanted to ask Charles, like, how, what was his experience using it? And, um, you know, do you teach it in your classes as well? Is this, has, this become, has this become a very standardized way of sharing, collaborating work? So we, so there's two reasons we don't teach it in our classes. One reason is there's no academic discount from Frame.io, which uh, every time I run into Emery, I give him shit about. And he's always like, talk to my salespeople. Yeah. And I'm like, no, but you're the CEO. So give me an academic discount. So there's no academic discount, which yeah. is one reason. The other reason is I personally, at this point, Think of Frame.io as being a really phenomenal tool for creative collaboration on teams for specific types of projects. Mm -hmm. Music videos, commercials, corporate work, um, short form, uh, promotional content, branded. I think uh, Frame.io is a phenomenal tool. Yeah. I don't think Frame.io is a great tool for narrative work yet. Yeah. And the reason why I don't, and I don't, it actually might never be. I really think narrative work is best done to people sitting together in a room. I always like to say, and this is stolen from Ralph Rosenblum, who wrote a great book, When the Editing Stops. Um, I always like to say that most editing is done over lunch. So you spend like all morning <laughs> looking at footage and there's the two of yeah. you together and you're, in, you know, editor and director and you're watching stuff. And then you're like four hours of you're like, all right, let's take a break. You go out for pizza. You're eating a slice. And then you're like, wait a minute. What if we didn't open on the farm? What if we opened in the machine shop mm -hmm. and then you look at each other and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's the thing. That kind of thing can't really happen in Frame.io. The like we're like together so much our one our two minds become one and we have all these ideas and we wrestle with the big problems of a story. That work is work in person. And I think it probably always will be. So we don't teach Frame.io in the school because we're a narrative focused school. Those mm -hmm. are the projects we're trying to get students working on. Right. And frankly, it's hard enough to get this generation in a room together. We actually have started <laughs> spelling out in our syllabi, like how much time we expect people to meet to work on something. Because oh, wow. we'll give an assignment like, oh my God, we would give an assignment like <laughs> director and DP would do a lookbook, which like, you know, we're all olds. We're all, we're all in our 40s and 50s and 60s. So when I <laughs> see, all right, director DP do a lookbook, I assume that's like five hours sitting around looking at photo books, searching the internet, building a lookbook. And we would have students and we'd be like, how long did you meet? And they'd be like, oh, I haven't met the DP yet. We did that over email. We just sent Google Drive. And like, I don't think you need to be able to like look at an image and talk about it and argue and make decisions. So big, complicated narrative work is probably not what Frame.io is going for. Mm. I also don't think that's a huge market. There's not that many people working in big, complicated narrative work. Where Frame.io is really amazing and stands out is I'm working on a commercial. There is a client. The client has opinions. They have five people right, on the team. Right. They really do right. have the final say. Yeah. I want to be able to send something to them and get their notes in the cleanest, simplest, shortest fashion mm -hmm. in a way that like then – shows up like the beauty of Frame.io is it integrates with all the NLEs. So the notes literally appear as markers in your timeline. So you can just like crank through marker to marker. The client's note appears, you address it, you don't address it, whatever it is. It's so cool. So you like comment for back. those kind of So we what? we actually use it at you can comment back too. You can oh, like yeah. add to a comment and like we use it at No Film School. Um it's very useful. Uh it's funny hearing you talk though about um how collaboration has changed yeah. and how much can be done remote and how it enables the remote collab because it i find that yes on anything not just on a film uh it's it, there's a difference and you have to adjust to it uh, uh collaborating remote with people 
um, the energy in a room or in a shared space or in an office is just different. And you can't really, you know, it's like, well, yeah, so is cutting on celluloid on a steam back, you know, like putting the pieces of putting the shots literally together and splicing them. But I think that um, your point is like, how much, what does something like Frame.io make significantly easier? And it makes a certain kind of workflow much, much better. And it might make another kind of workflow less effective in a weird way, but it's not designed for that necessarily. But I do think we're going to find that a lot of creators are going to be collaborating with people only remote, and that's going to create a new kind of language and a new result and a new product. And that'll just be what it is. Um, and, and I, but I also want to highlight that you mentioned that there are so many jobs out there for people who want to work in film and video that you do not have to think about it. Like there aren't that many major big budget features being produced for you to direct. There are so many ways you can work in the industry and make a living that are just so many possibilities. I think it's worth always highlighting that. Well, also, I'm going to counter what I just said and point out the fact that Chernobyl, one of my favorite shows of the year, maybe the best show this year. Chernobyl was so good. Go watch Chernobyl, everybody. Chernobyl was cut remotely. The editor lives in, I'm not going to say it right because I'm not English, Bournemouth, whatever. It's an hour south of London down on the beach. You know, England has beaches. They're not very warm, but they're there. And the editor lives there. And Craig Mazin lives in L.A. or New York. And the DP, the director is Swedish. And I forget where he lives. And I don't know, I don't know how much they met in person. I think it was like 99.99% a remote edit. And they just did it. And, the, and it worked. Yeah, it's going to be the way things are done. So it's going to, you know, there's going to be examples of where it works and where it doesn't for sure. I think we, we will always miss the things you're talking about in how, how effective the in-person can be. But um, there's always phone calls. You know, there's a lot of ways you can... Um, emails like i mean we have so many ways of communicating quickly so yeah we'll see how it evolves but it's definitely it's definitely going to be the go to yeah. I, I also i also imagine that for cgi work it's super helpful because cgi work can be very very granular and you know you just if you just want like quick feedback or how something looks on a certain screen it might be nice to actually just you know quickly get get some feedback on it and continue on since the time cg but cgi has cg is the area where there's a lot of competition though right frame.io as far as i can tell is very dominant in the like editor color client space Ah, but in cg isn't there like shot runner and another one where but my experience of them i've not used any of them my experience when i talk to post soups is that none of them are client facing they're all like this is about a post super uh, a vfx supervisor running a team None of them are like none of them are are UI friend or UX friendly enough to send to a client. The way like Frame.io is just like you just you can just send it to a client, and it's so easy. So I think yeah. Although I'm sure Frame.io is taking off a lot in the in the CGI space. As that's well. that's like what I was wondering because a lot of CG can be done remotely. Like there are communities online where they just never meet. They never even meet the artist, and they just do everything remotely and I wonder if I frame IO ha- you know is probably very useful for that and I also heard Vimeo is kind of transitioning their video service into being a little bit more similar to frame IO right to have that more collaboration I mean, online they, thing. 
They have a commenting tool that I've played with a little bit. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now it's just Frame.io is so good. Yeah. And it and they have such a head start where they like continually keep leapfrogging um, over and over and over again. Like every time somebody else seems like they're going to catch up, Frame.io then like rolls out some sort of amazing deep integration with Final Cut 10 or something else. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So it's like they're so far ahead. I mean, I hope Vimeo catches up because I love Vimeo and it would be nice <laughs> to pay only one subscription, not two. But yeah. <laughs> Frame.io is very – they have a big development team and they are moving fast. I mean, their integration that they rolled out with Resolve where – because the big thing – I mean, they just pulled Michael Cioni over. Their whole big next step is direct to edit – from set they're working on boxes where you're shooting on set and you have like a frame io box on the back of your camera that's using wi-fi to automatically generate dailies upload them to frame io and then literally they just appear in resolve like you have a drive in resolve that shows up in your media pool that's the frame io drive and you're just like like you know as soon as wi-fi can move it from set to the edit room the editor is working an hour after the shot was shot you still have to shuttle the full res files over, but like those kind of from set to post workflows. Yeah, that's amazing. That's the thing that's gonna, yeah, it's gonna change so much. Wow. All right, well, that's the No Film School podcast for this Thanksgiving week. Uh, we wish everybody. A happy and merry Thanksgiving, and I hope everybody gets to watch fun movies this weekend because that's a Thanksgiving tradition. Oh yeah! Uh, you can always check uh, me out at Charles Hayne on Twitter or Instagram, or Weekend Film Tech is my tech-only podcast for pure tech nerdery. And uh, yeah, I got two books out. Uh, you can you can look them up. Google Charles Hayne books. That's it this week. Uh. And this is Charlene Wong. You can find me on Instagram at Tiny Goldfish. And this is George Edelman, uh, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Um, you can find me on nofilmschool.com and all the stuff that I've written and edited and the stuff we're publishing all the time. Follow us at No Film School on Twitter and head over to our Facebook page. Uh, this week, I want to let people know we have a couple really exciting things coming through the website. We are teasing an exclusive BTS clip with Robert Richardson from the uh, extended uh, features for um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That'll be live on Wednesday, November 27th. And we also really excited about this. We chatted with the Roger Deakins about shooting 1917. That interview will go up on the site um, closer to the release date of 1917, but it was thrilling. We got a lot of time. The man is amazing. His work is amazing. Um, so thanks so much. Yeah, and thanks uh, for listening. Thank you. Thank you.